Hi, welcome to the Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast, the podcast where we delve into the stories of sports teams and athletes that came close to glory but never won the big one. These teams still deserve to be recognized, even though they failed when it, when it mattered most. And whether they were undone by bad timing, injuries, hubris, or just plain bad luck, they all have a tale worth telling. I am your host, Gen Xer and sports geek Peter Shaw, and I'm being joined remotely by my friend and co-host for the week for this podcast, Bruce Stone. This is part three of three of our epic Viking saga, recalling the tales of the 1968 to 1978 Minnesota Vikings. So off we go. On to the 76th season. So it was the U.S. Bicentennial, and actually I remember it well because I was in third grade. And the Vikings actually drafted an impact player. They brought, they brought in Sammy White out of Grambling, and he would replace John Gilliam, who had signed with Atlanta as a free agent. They also traded uh, for former Cardinal and Bill wide receiver Ahmad Rashad, who was born Bobby Moore and changed his name after converting to Islam. Ahmad Rashad set out the entire 75 season with a knee injury, but was fit and ready. Quick fun fact about Ahmad Rashad, he played running back in college at the University of Oregon in 71. He was an All-American, and he lined up with podcast fave quarterback Dan Fouts. While he was on the Bills, he roomed on the road with the least favorite of the pod, O.J. Simpson, <laughs> while with the Bills. He's got associations with one of the goats, in my opinion, and a true goat. I think he might also be friends with Bill Cosby, right? Uh, exactly. Which is another Actually, unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, you know, exactly. You're known. Big better company, Ahmad. Yeah. Oh my goodness, Ahmad. Oh, dude, reevaluate. All right. So now you had 36 year old Fran Tarkenton. You had Bud Grant, who always looked the same age. Um, they were still captains of this Viking ship. And Fran put another Pro Bowl year. He had 17 TDs and eight interceptions, very efficient. Chuck Foreman was still a star of the offense. He rushed for 1,100 yards, 13 TDs, 55 catches out of the backfield, and a receiving touchdown. They still had McClanahan as their basher in the uh, backfield, getting four touchdowns, 40, 40 balls being caught out of the backfield. And Sammy White, um, as a rookie, had a Pro Bowl season with 900 yards and 10 touchdowns, and he would go on to really be one of the Viking star wide receivers for a bunch of years, along with Rashad. Now, Rashad was more of a possession receiver um, and almost had the same number of catches as White, but only had 671 yards and three touchdowns. And the kicker this year was, drum roll please, 38-year-old no. Freddie Cox. Now, even with Freddie Cox clanging it off the crossbar occasionally, he probably took Geritol before each kick, he scored the ninth most points in the league. And for another year, this aging defense was still amazing. They let up the second least points in the league again. And linebacker Jeff Seaman and Alan Page went to the Pro Bowl. No shocker for Page, who is a legend's legend. And we'll talk about his post-playing career, where he's even more legendary later. So, unfortunately for them, they had four starting defenders who were 34 years of age or older, including Jim Marshall, who was still playing at 39. Which, props to you, Jimbo. The team had an, another excellent year in the win-loss category. They went 11-2-1, and one, and they lost their two games by one and four points. So this is a team that was in every game or won every game. Now, in the divisional round of the playoffs, they hosted 10-4 and four Washington. The team was coached by George Allen still, and they still had quarterback Billy Kilmer as their main quarterback 
And Billy was backed up by a more mobile quarterback named Joe Theismann, who spent his first three years as a pro as a quarterback for the CFL Toronto Argonauts. So it keeps coming back to the CFL. Their running backs at the time were John Riggins, who started for the Jets before coming to the, to the Skins, now the Washington football team. And they also had Mike Thomas. They had a pretty decent wide receiver, uh, wide receiver core, which um, we're not really going to talk about. Their kicker was one of the last few American-style kickers like Fred Cox and Cleveland's Don Cockcroft, Mark Mosley. They had some defensive stars. My favorite uh, linebacking name at the time, Chris Hamburger. And Hamburger's helper was safety Ken Houston, who was a one-time pro bowler, two-time all-pro, NFL Hall of Famer in the future. And actually, he started his career in – Let me guess. Houston. You were going to guess that. You are totally going to guess Houston. <laughs> With the Oilers, so that is weird. That is weird. Crazy. It was like predestined. On the first drive of the day, the Vikings against the Skins, McClanahan burst through a hole in the left side of the line for a 41-yard run, even though he was a short-yarded specialist. And Fran finished off the drive with a touchdown toss to Stu Voigt. Now, the Skins came down. I keep calling them Skins. I don't want to offend anybody. The Washington football team, but they were called Skins at that time, answered with a Mark Mosley field goal. But Fran had his mojo work, and he came right down, and after a five-minute drive, completed a 27-yard touchdown pass to rookie Sammy White off a deflection. So at the end of the first quarter, 14-3, Vikings. The offensive line kept Tarkington protected all day, and the running game was really, really hitting their stride, really, really humming. Chuck Foreman ran for another touchdown, two-yard touchdown, to close out the first half, and the Vikes were up 21-3. to three. And even Freddie Cox was hitting those PATs like nobody's business. Good job, Freddie, even okay. though they were kicking from the two at that time. <laughs> right. Like a fine wine, Freddie, Freddie gets better. So in the third quarter, the beatdown continued, and Foreman ran, run, ran for 30 yards through a bewildered Washington D for another touchdown. And the Vikings runners by the end of the game would outgain the Washington's running backs 221 to 75, with Foreman and McClanahan both getting over 100 yards on 20 carries. The Redskins could only answer with another Mark Mosley field goal. But the Purple People leaders really shut down their O. Tark hit Sammy White on another touchdown, this one shorter. And after three, it was a blowout, 35 to six. And the Vikings hung back a little bit in the fourth quarter, so Kilmer got some garbage time touchdowns to pad the stats and got two way touchdowns to make this, the score line look a little more flattering at 35-20. But it didn't matter because the Vikes were off to another NFC championship, their third in four years. And they were hosting in frigid Bloomington for the second time in three years, the Los Angeles Rams. Yeah, poor L.A. keeps having to come up here for the playoffs. Yeah, the Rams have a podcast in their future because – they're, they're, yeah. they're, these years were not full of, you know, success for them either for the first round or two of the playoffs. So the Rams had a quarterback named Pat Hayden. Chuck Knox, who was a great coach, was, uh, was leading the way, calling the plays. And this team was third in scoring and third in points allowed, and they had a 10-3-1 record. And their one tie was with the Vikings in week two in Minnesota. So these teams were pretty well matched, and they knew each other pretty well. They had James Harris as their backup quarterback for Hayden. He came in and won three of the games. And future Eagle and sportscaster Ron Jaworski, the Polish rifle, was 2-0 as a starter coming in in relief. They were really going to the deep parts of their depth chart, yet they were still winning. Their running game was really paced by pro bowler 
freight train and former Colorado State running back Lawrence McCutcheon, who ran for 1,200 yards and nine touchdowns. They had on their squad the 1973 Heisman Trophy winner, Joe, uh, John Capoletti, and he would come in and get the hard yards and racking up 688 for the season, which was his most as a pro for actually for his whole career, which was not as impressive as his college career. Besides winning the Heisman, John was also famous for his close relationship with his younger brother, Joey, who sadly died from leukemia earlier in the year. The relationship was made into a TV movie in 1977 called Something for Joey, starring future Beastmaster actor Mark Singer. The movie was a bit cheesy, but it is a tearjerker, and if it doesn't make you cry, you are, you're dead inside if you see that and you don't cry. One more Super Bowl loss, and I might be. I know. I know you're not dead inside. Yeah, because you, you have wept many a tear for this team. Now, the Rams had Ron Jesse and Harold Jackson as their wicked fast wideouts. They both put up great numbers. They combined for 11 TDs, 1,500 yards in the year. And their D was still tough at almost every position with three all-pros. They had Jack Youngblood still. They had a linebacker named Isaiah Robertson, who was uh, made the pro ball and cornerback. Monty Jackson was an all-pro who picked off 10 balls all year. Their kicker was a journeyman, and he's uh, recently passed away. Sadly, the late legendary Tom Dempsey, he of the husky build, half foot and half an arm, who held the longest NFL field goal record for 43 years with a 63-yard game winner for the Saints against the Lions in 1970. Bronco Matt Prater kicked a 64-yarder at elevation in Mile High Stadium in 2013 with a whole foot. So I'll take Dempsey. I'll take Cox. No, wait. <laughs> I would take Dempsey. <laughs> yeah, can I get another chance? <laughs> no, get another no you've already spoken. No more wishes. You've used up all your wishes. Now, now the table was set. The Rams took the ball down the field to the Minnesota one. We're on third down. Pat Hayden got a little sneak, but he got stuffed literally six inches short of the line. Chuck Knox wanted to come away with points. Rather than go for the touchdown, he sent out Dempsey. Unfortunately for Tom, he kind of caught the aging kicking blues, and he was not protected, so the kick got blocked. It bounced backwards to the 10, and who was there but Bobby Bryant to pick it up and return it 90 yards for a touchdown? That, that dude was money. Talk about big play, man. Yeah, Bobby Bryant was a stud. And by the way, let me just say the uh, analytics game were not very strong for these teams back in the day. Kicking field goals from inside the one, come on. At the six inches line? I mean, when you had you – know, you could, you know what? Even though Pat Hayden was not a big dude, put in James Harris. That guy was, was made out of bricks. He was a big dude for a quarterback at the time. James yeah. Harris put his head down and get a yard any D against any D on any day, period. That was really unfortunate for them. But good for the Vikings. So Freddie Cox added a little insult to injury, so he got, he got a field goal in his next attempt, and the Vikings were up 10-0 at the half. In the third quarter, Chuck Foreman burst through the line and sprinted on a 62-yard run, I should say, which was pretty impressive, and he finished up the drive with his own one-yard touchdown run. So the Norsemen were up against the Rams 17-0. But the Rams' D stood, uh, stood tough and really uh, stiffened up, probably easy because it was cold in Minnesota but they turned two Viking turnovers into two touchdowns on a 10-yard run by McCutcheon and a Hayden pass to speedster Harold Jackson. So now it was 17-14, after, so they really capitalized on the two turnovers. But the Vikings' front four were not to be outdone, and they turned up the intensity and started chasing Hayden all over the field, which is what they like to do. 
On one drop back, we actually had time. He went deep, and a roving Bobby Bryant swooped in and got his second interception of the game. And on the next drive, the ensuing drive, Tark dumped, dumped, dumped the ball off to Foreman, who turned it into a 57-yard reception into, deep into Rams territory. And a few plays later, Little used running back Sammy Johnson closed out the scoring and closed out the Rams with a 10-yard touchdown run. And the Vikings were victorious 24-14. to Now, these Vikes were off to their fourth Super Bowl and were one win away from closing out, the, out their best year. Their opponents that year, the Oakland Raiders. These Raiders had been losers to the Super Bowl. I mean, I should say losers in the Super Bowl to the Packers in Super Bowl II. And then on one on to lose to the eventual winners of the next three Super Bowls. So in 1976, John Madden came in and he led the team to a, I mean, he came in a few years earlier, I should say. He led the team to a 13 and one record after losing the last three conference championship games to the Dolphins once and to the hated Steelers twice. But this year, they won the AFC West easily, but they had a squeak by Steve Grogan and his enormous neck guard and shoulder pads to beat the New England Patriots in the divisional round game with two late touchdowns. They won 24 to 21 over the Pats. In the AFC championship game, they exacted revenge on the Steelers with a very efficient beat down 24 to seven. So was this the year that Al Davis and his renegades could actually fulfill their destiny? Or would this be the year that the also ran Vikings won their first Lombardi trophy after three momentous failures? The fans in Pasadena and the fans around the world were about to find out. The Raiders, fans of this podcast already know, on the other hand. Exactly, sadly. So there's not a lot of suspense, but I still like seeing movies that I already know the ending to. So the Raiders had a team really out of central casting for misfits and tough-as-nails football players. Their quarterback was Ken the Snake Stabler, who looked like he could have easily been a NASCAR driver or a bootlegger. And he just made stuff happen. His stats were never spectacular. This year they were great, but he was one of those guys that was just a winner. So he threw for 27 touchdowns that year and was in the Pro Bowl. So he actually had a really good year, but he just made things happen. Stabler had two amazingly fast and sure-handed wide receivers to choose from. The, the wicked fast and grossly underrated Cliff Branch. And for a Charger fan to say that a Raider wide receiver was underrated, that means something. And he also had the amazingly consistent Fred Bolitnikoff, after whom the award for the best collegiate wide receiver is named. Fred was 33 at this point. He was still wearing a single bar face mask, and he caught four to three balls for seven touchdowns. Branch only had three more catches than Fred, but he got 1,100 yards and 12 touchdowns for an astounding 24.2 yards per catch. So talk about a vertical passing game. I'm sure in the huddle, this is what Stabler would say, Fred, you do a 12-yard button hook, and Cliff, you go deep. That's probably what he said every single play, because <laughs> that's pretty much how their offense ran. Cliff was an all-pro, along with stud tight end Dave the Ghost Casper, who got 10 receiving touchdowns that year. Now, I don't forgive Dave the Ghost Casper for his holy roller play to beat the Chargers in the second game of the 78 season, but he was a damn good tight end, and he went on to be in the Hall of Fame, and these guys were great. Their offensive line was anchored by future Hall of Famers Gene Upshaw and Art Shell. They had a bruising running game led by Mark Van Egan, who was a Colgate University alum. He had 1,100 yards and three touchdowns. They had Clarence Davis, 500 yards, two, uh, two touchdowns. And shorted, short yardage guy Pete Banizak, who got five touchdowns and 300 yards. 
just a shout out to the Colgate University Red Raiders where my brother-in-law PJ went. Go Red Raiders. The defense was essentially taken from the cantina scene from the first Star Wars movie. On the D-line, you had John Matuzak, who was a maniac. You had bald-headed Otis Sistrunk, who never went to college and told people he was from Mars. Their linebackers in the 3-4 formation were solid, and they were led by 6-7 Ted the Stork Hendricks, who was already a pro bowler four times with the Colts and Packers before he came to the Raiders, where he actually got more notoriety and fame, and would eventually go on to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. They had some super opportunistic D-backs, future Hall of Famer Willie Brown and Jack Tatum, who was a great D-back but was infamous for a preseason hit that paralyzed wide receiver Daryl Stingley of the Patriots. He would go on to write a book about himself and his life and the impact this would have called They Call Me Assassin. If the Vikings were going to get off of the schneid, it was not going to be easy against this Raider team. They were a motley bunch, but they were really clicking in every area of their game. The Raiders got the opening kickoff, and their O-line pushed around the Vikings D, driving down the field, mostly on the ground. But they eventually stalled, and they settled on an Errol Mann 29-yard field goal attempt, which he missed. So after a few punts back and forth, the Raiders had another drive fizzle. All-time great punter Ray Guy, who everyone knows about, lined up to punt, and it was blocked. This is the first time in his career a punt was ever blocked. It was blocked by the Vikings special teams and was recovered at the, at the Raiders' three-yard line. So could the Norsemen draw first blood? I'm mean, sorry, they got one yard on first down, second and goal at the two. They're not going to hand off to Chuck Foreman because that dude's grief. So they're going to hand off to McClanahan, who normally is quite the you know, steady-handed guy. Unfortunately, McClanahan fumbled and the Raiders recovered. I talk about bad luck. It's like Charlie Brown bad luck with the Vikings at the one-yard line. So the Raiders took the ball and drove down, and they lined up Errol Mann for another field goal, which he actually put through to go up 3-0 from 24 yards out. The Vikings were back on O again, but they stalled, and they had to punt the ball back to the Raiders. And the snake got warmed up, and he orchestrated a really meticulous 64-yard drive. That's the way to describe it. I watched the replay of this entire drive, and they got him down to the one-yard line where Stabler dropped back and hit the ghost for a one-yard touchdown and a 10-0 lead. The Vikings, unfortunately, punted again, and Oakland just ran the ball down the purple gullets of the Vikings, eventually scoring on another touchdown by, by Banizak, who was their short-yarded specialist. Clarence Davis was actually getting, the, getting yard after yard for them because the O-line was blowing these huge holes open, and Mark Egan was also blocking like a beast, but they decided to give the ball – to the other guy right at the goal line. Not really giving much love to the other running backs, but they still got a touchdown. And Mann went back to not being the man, and he missed the PAT. So it's still, the Raiders were up 16-0, and it was halftime. So the Vikings must have looked at each other, you know, in the uh, locker room because nothing was working. Sammy White didn't even have a catch. Chuck Foreman had no room to operate, let alone fumble. And he caught a couple passes out of the backfield. But they were really ineffective. And Chuck, unfortunately, would only finish with 44 yards rushing, the same number on his beautiful purple and white jersey. In the third quarter, the punters once again stretched their legs out, and they were kicking the ball back and forth until the Raiders finally got the ball and put together a short drive, which ended another field goal by Errol Mann, 19 to Zippo. 
Tark and the Vikings were starting to get desperate. The defense was old. Tark was getting older. They were in the Super Bowl for the fourth time. They had to just do something. So they started to throw on every single play pretty much. And Rashad was catching the ball. Foreman was catching the ball. And they moved 68 yards down the field. And Tark finished off the drive with under one minute left in the third period with an eight-yard toss to Sammy White for his first catch of the day. So the Vikings had a little bit of hope, a little bit of wind behind their sails, 19-7 to going into the fourth quarter they were down. And they started to play with a little bit of swagger and confidence. Alan Page finally got to Stabler for a sack and an 11-yard loss, and Ray Guy was forced to punt again. Unfortunately, they didn't block it, but they were able to get good field position and drive down the field to the Raider 37. Now, Tark threw a pass towards Foreman, but it got picked off near the sideline by D-back Willie Hall. The Raiders took that ball, and they moved right down the field and got the ball to Banizak, and he got his second rushing touchdown, and they were up by an almost insurmountable 26-7. to I don't know why they didn't give Clarence a little love and give him the ball, but because he, he got more yards rushing than anyone that game. Now, Fran, once again, obviously came out slinging and scrambling as the clock was ticking away. And on his sixth passing attempt in a row, 36-year-old D-back Willie Brown picked him off and burst 75 yards down the sideline for a touchdown, which is now one of those iconic NFL films piece of footage that the Vikings didn't want to be remembered for, much like the Hail Mary. Man missed the extra point, but it really didn't freaking matter. Raiders 33, Vikings 7 with six minutes left. The Vikings actually got so desperate, they put in former punter and backup quarterback Bob Lee, who actually got a consolation touchdown with under a minute left. But as Bill Murray said in the movie Meatballs, it just doesn't matter. And it was 33-13, to the final score. The very hefty John Madden got carried off the field. Freddie Bolitnikoff gets the MVP. Bud Grant goes down the tunnel to sulk once again. And Madden goes on to become an announcer, a pitch man, and gets his own video game, and the rest is history. Any reflections or memories from this time? Oh, boy. It's feeling like the end of an era. Things were starting to fall apart here. Everybody was showing their age. New teams were coming in there as the competition. It looked like uh, the curtain was kind of starting to come down on this era, honestly, at this point. Yeah, I'm I'm sure it had that that feeling of impending doom. And now for a short break. This podcast is brought to you by Cigar City Brewing. At Cigar City Brewing, we make the beer we like to drink and toast those who choose to drink with us. Whether it's the full flavor of High Lie IPA or the lighter-bodied High Low IPA, Cigar City Brewing has you covered for any occasion that calls for handcrafted beer. Find out more at CigarCityBrewing.com. Cigar City Brewing, Tampa, Florida, Please enjoy responsibly. Now back to the podcast. Fran stuck around at the age of 37 for the 77 season for one more year, and he thought he had a little more left in the tank, and so did Bud Grant. And they still had Foreman and McClanahan. They weren't driven out of town for their, for their bad fumbles, and they felt that they were still capable of something special. Their, Vic, their wide receivers, I should say, were still Rashad and White. Uh, unrelated to Sammy was star Ed White and Ron Yeri, and they anchored the O-line. Their center, who I did not speak of, but was an unsung hero, Mick Tinglehoff, which is another great name, was 37, and his career was winding down. So in addition to the aging Tark and Mick, who were in their late 30s, their defensive core was there for so long, and they were making their last stand together. 
You had 40-year-old Jim Marshall, 35-year-old Carl Eller, 32-year-old Alan Page, who some felt like he'd been around forever. You had stalwarts Kraus and Bryant were 35 and 33. Not really old, but old for defensive backs. Jeff Seaman and Matt Blair were their, were their linebacking stars. And their kicker. Can you guess who their, who their kicker was? <laughs> I don't even want to know. It was Freddie Cox at the age of 39. Oh, good. That inspires confidence. Great. That's at least great. He, he finished his career before he got his AA, AARP card, at least. Freddie Cox was back at the age of 39. Now, these Vikings were like the Rolling Stones in, their, in the last 20-some-odd years. They were still together, but could they still rock was the question still being asked. I can attest that the Stones, at least when I saw them in 97, when they were still pretty old, could still rock. I think they can still rock. It turns out these Vikings actually could still rock, just not as well as before. They slid down the rankings really on both sides of the football. Under, and under Tark, they were 6-3, and three, but then Tark broke his leg. And they had Lee was their second stringer, and rookie Tommy Kramer was taking snaps also uh, off, off the bench. And they still somehow eked out a 9-5 nine, nine and five record, even though Tarkenton was lost for a big chunk of the year. And they actually were first place in the NFC Central Division. They, they showed they were mortal, and time was running out. During the year, they actually played the, the Raiders, the defending Super Bowl champions, and the Raiders beat the snot out of them. In the first round of the playoffs, they played the Rams at L.A., and quarterback Bob Lee ended up only throwing for 57 yards, but they handed off to Chuck Foreman just about every play. It seemed he got 102 hard yards, and he rushed for a touchdown, and the defense picked off future lawyer and Rhodes scholar Pat Hayden three times, and the Vikings didn't turn the ball over once. Hey. So, so this resulted and probably was a very ugly but very tight 14-7 win. Surprise! You knew you stop turning it over, you can win a playoff game. Exactly. So these gray-bearded Viking warriors still had a little bit left in the tank, it seemed. In the NFC Championship game, they traveled again to Dallas to play a familiar foe and stalwart, a nemesis, I should say. The Cowboys had the best record in the NFC, 12-2. and And in the first round, they trounced a beleaguered Bears, who are the wild card team, 37-7. And even Walter Payton could not save those Bears from Cowboys that year. Now, this game started close, and Dallas was only holding a 13-6 lead before Efren Herrera kicked a field goal to send them to the locker room with a 16-6 lead. So the Vikes were only down 10 going into halftime, which, which is pretty good on the road. But they can only muster uh, two Fab Five Freddie Cox field goals all day. The Cowboys shut down Chuck Foreman. Bob Lee shut down himself, and the Vikings really could not overcome four turnovers. So the final score was Dallas 23, Minnesota 6, and back to the great white north for those hosers. The Cowboys would go on to beat the Broncos in the first Super Bowl that I ever watched live, Super Bowl 13, 27 to 10. On to the 78 season. Tarkin actually came back for another year. He was 38, and he led the Vikings out of the tunnel for his last season in the NFL. He didn't want to end on a broken leg. And Sugar, they were going down swinging. So by that, I mean Fran attempted more passes than he ever had in his entire career. And even though it was the NFL's first 16-game season after playing 14 games for years, he still threw 150 more times than he had in his, uh, ever tried in a 14-game season. 
He threw for more yards than ever before with 3,468. And he threw for a career-high 32 touchdowns. But he also threw for a Jameis Winston-like 25 interceptions to counterbalance Gastly. two TDs. Um, Jameis threw for 30, if you remember, in the 2019 season to undo 30 touchdowns. So Rashad and White were still their primary beneficiaries of Tark slinging the ball around, trying to fight father time, and each had 700 yards minimum, and they combined for 17 TDs. So the passing game was clicking a bit when they weren't throwing the ball to the other team. Foreman was complimented by the equally versatile Ricky Young out of the backfield. Ricky Young was, uh, I believe, a Jackson State product, and he was good catching the ball out of the backfield for his whole career. Freddie Cox finally hung up his cleats. And he was replaced by an another American-style kicker, so the Vikings were slow to adapt to the times. <laughs> they brought in Rick Danmeyer. Um, maybe they liked him because he was from White Bear Lake, Minnesota. And, you know, they love these guys who are from the Great White North, whether they're from Canada or Minnesota. But yeah, we don't turn out a ton of NFL players, but when there is one, they always end up on the Vikings eventually. It, it seems, seems that way. It always seems that way. In any case, everyone else saw the writing on the wall and had soccer-style kickers who were more accurate and could kick further, but they brought in Dan Meyer after Cox. And that's like replacing your, your Brown Ford Taurus with another newer Brown Ford Taurus when everyone else on the street has moved on to the Honda Accord or the Toyota Camry, which were much more fuel efficient and cost efficient and reliable. What an analogy. I actually have like fond memories of, of Rick Dan Meyer from my childhood, but probably only because he was not Fred Cox. You know, I, I like Dan Meyer too. I'm not going to hate on Dan Meyer at all. Brian and Marshall were still, were still playing, but the D ranked 20th in points allowed. So they were sliding back. Um, they scored 12 less points than they let up all year. Um, they won the competitive, which by that I mean highly mediocre NFC Central. They were champions with an 8-7-1 record. The Pack had the same record as the Vikings, but the Vikings won on a tiebreaker. And the Lions and Bears both tied for seven wins. So we're talking these teams were, you know, six, six of one, half a dozen of them. They were very similar and all mediocre, which is why this was the black and blue division for so many years. The entire division had a negative point differential. So that told you that the Vikings were the king of the mediocre teams. And they faced off against the 12-4 and four Rams, who are now ready for the Vikings. The Rams were essentially the same team from the year before. It was actually 10-10 at halftime on the strength of a Dan Meyer 42-yarder, not a missed field goal, thankfully, and a Rashad pass, Rashad, Ahmad Rashad pass from Tarkenton. So they were the underdogs, but they were hanging tough. It was 10-10 at the half. Unfortunately, the second half was all Rams, and the Viking faithful had to hang their heads because in the second half, the, the Rams just ran the ball and ran the ball, and they rang up over 200 rushing yards and scored 24 unanswered points to break their bad run against the Vikings and win 34-10. to So they had been eliminated by Minnesota the way – the Cowboys were the Minnesota's nemesis. They were the Vikings' nemesis, and they had been eliminated by Minnesota in three out of the last four years. So this was their revenge. Now, these Rams would go on to lose to the Cowboys the next week, but they eventually had the satisfaction of beating the Vikings in the playoffs, and the Vikings were done, period. Let's do the aftermath, as I, or as I like to say, the sports autopsy. The 79 Vikings were not horrendous. They had a new starting quarterback, Tommy Kramer, who would go on to have a bunch of good years. 
but they, they weren't that good either. You know, they were seven and nine. They failed to make the playoffs after making it for 10 times in 11 years. And the Vikings, they were the Rams foil for so many years. And I talked about the Cowboys were their foil. Dallas and Minnesota met in the playoffs in 68, 71, 73, 75, 76, and 77. And Dallas won five out of those six. So curse you, America's team, in quotation marks. Pearson pushed off. Well, yeah, I would say so. It's kind of like Humpty Dumpty was pushed. That should be the bumper sticker. <laughs> so the Vikings would remain mediocre for the next eight years with only two playoff appearances, both first-round exits. And then we had one truly bad year. They went 3-13 and in 84. Now, that was the year after Bud Grant retired after the 83 season. After they won only three games under Les Steckel, a name that Vikings fans would, I'm sure, love to forget, Bud Grant came out of retirement, and he coached them to seven wins. And then in 85, he retired for good. Now, Grant retired as the eighth most successful coach in NFL history and an overall record of 160 wins, 99 losses, and five ties. And as of the filming or taping of this podcast, He's still plugging along at 93 years old. And I just saw a photograph of him at an autograph signing session in Minneapolis. To me, it's shocking he's 93 because he looked like he was 80 years old in the 1980s. <laughs> like 1981, he looked like he was 80. So the dude, I, I don't know. I guess coaching the Vikings for that long just made him just get old fast and look old. But the, the, dude, the dude is a legend. That's all you can say. He was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame and the CFL Hall of Fame for his career achievements. Just remember, in the CFL, he was 102, 102 wins, 56 losses, and two ties before coming to Minnesota. So let's talk about Fran Tarkenton. He retired after the 78 season, and for years he held many NFL career passing records, including most yards with over 47,000. As of today, it tells you how pass-happy the NFL is he now ranks 12th all-time with the emergence of these new passing schemes and much, uh, much more passer-friendly and receiver-friendly rules. Now, he would go on to be elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 86. He was a Pro Bowler nine times and the NFL MVP, as I mentioned, in 75. He has written several books, including an autobiography with veteran Minnesota journalist Jim Kolbishar, whose daughter, Amy, would go on to be a senator from Minnesota and run for president. How's that for a Minnesota deep, 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 deep cut into the ice from which you Yeah, thanks for that. Jim was a columnist on the newspaper, and yeah, he, he much uh, loved. had a front row seat for all this stuff. Yeah, much, much loved. I should have tried to get him on the podcast with you. That would have been the bomb. I think he's still alive. If not, rest in peace, because he he's a Minnesota uh, legend. Interestingly, he also, Fran Tarkin, co-wrote a murder mystery titled Murder at the Super Bowl. That, and that was probably one of the easiest donuts to solve. <laughs> too easy. Any, any team who played the Vikings was the killer, or it was OJ. So, I mean, it pretty much writes itself. <laughs> uh, he also wrote four self-help motivational books and has done many infomercials. In uh, 90, 1999, he was actually fined by the federal investigators for securities fraud and paid over $150,000 in fines. Last but not least about Fran, he co-hosted the ABC TV show That's Incredible with John Davidson and Kathy Lee Crosby from 80 to 84. Do you remember that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of must-watch TV. And the, the show was 
pretty stupid in retrospect. It featured stunts like people catching arrows out of midair, people locking themselves in boxes, people setting themselves on fire. One guy ate a bicycle, after which they flashed on the screen incredible appetite. He didn't eat it all at once. He ate it over like a month. But still, I watched it the first year, and I really liked it. But again, I was 11. What the hell did I know? Because in retrospect, it really sucked. It did. Fran Tarkenton was pretty it's, milquetoast as a TV personality, yeah, I have yeah, to say. He was a dud. So now, on the front line of the Purple People Eaters, they all retired with many accolades. First, first and foremost, D-tackle Alan Page. The dude had nine Pro Bowl selections, was the first NFL MVP to be a defensive player, was in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, probably a zillion other awards. He went on to become a lawyer, was the first African-American elected to the Minnesota Supreme Court in 1992. The dude has written children's books with his daughter. 2018, got a Presidential Medal of Freedom when it meant something. And I kind of consider him the anti-Tarkenton after retirement. He's just a, tr- a true legend. And, I mean, you, you, you grew up in Minnesota. So, I mean, what do you remember from him? Uh, a great man, so well-respected around, uh, around the Twin Cities. Actually had a couple of interactions with him myself uh, after he was on Very the cool. Supreme Court. He uh, actually officiated my cousin's wedding. And my brother and I, who were fairly young at the time, were sitting there and what we remembered or what we – noticed as he was standing at the front reading his Bible was how enormous and just mangled his hands were. We were talking about his pinky sticking out sideways off the side of the Bible. And so we went up to him at the reception and actually took a picture of my hand next to, next to Alan Page's hand, which was a normal hand versus an unbelievably cool mangled NFL guy hand. And the other cool thing that, that Justice Page does is he's one of those guys who following his football career got really into fitness for his own health. So he became a runner. He, he lost, I don't know, 75 or a hundred pounds, became a very fit, you know, aerobic exercise kind of a guy. And what he does is he stands outside his, uh, his house on the day of the twin cities marathon and he plays the tuba for runners going by. So if you're running that marathon, which I did a couple of times, you kind of get to run right past Alan Page, and he's out there cheering the cheering the people on, which is such a cool thing. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, you know, everyone has flaws. No one's perfect. But one of my friends once said that Tony Riley, who was the CEO of Heinz for a long time, was an international rugby star for, for Ireland, played for the British Lions, British and Irish Lions. He once said to me, Tony, Tony Riley won at life, and Alan Page – he's a winner. He's a, he's a winner, both what he did on and off the field. Just, just a truly inspiring guy. All Super Bowls were about the only thing he wasn't good at in his life. Exactly. And that's not his fault. It seems like if if you could have 11 Allen pages on, on defense, you taught him how to play D back. They they could have won one or two other guys that came off. that came out of that defensive line. Carl Eller was his pro bowler six times and is in the hall of fame. Jim Marshall and Gary Larson each had two Pro Bowl selections. So Paul Krause retired with 81 career interceptions and was elected to the Hall of Fame, not shockingly. He was at the, in the Pro Bowl nine times, was an All-Pro three times. Washington football team's, you know, stupidity was of great benefit to the Vikings to, to, to get him. I mean, talk about just a stud throughout his whole career, made stuff happen. The recently deceased, sadly, Fred Cox, retired in 1977. 
I'm not dissing him as a human being, just his missing of extra points and close field goals. But he played 14 years of his career, all in Minnesota, is their all-time leading scorer there. He actually made more money after football because in 72, he invented a very soft football that was easy to grip and throw and catch, even for kids, the Nerf football. And he sold the idea to Parker Brothers and made royalties for years. So good on you, Fred, and rest in peace, bro. Now, Joe Cap, he's one of my favorite Vikings, even though he was only early in the story course. He had his best statistical year in Minnesota. He played a lot of good years in the CFL. He does have, he's tied for the record for number of touchdown passes in one game. He, t- he, owns, he owns a share of the record with seven, which is pretty special. And he went on to coach his alma mater, Cal, from 82 to 86. He coached in the Arena League one year for the Sacramento Attack. And he is in the Canadian co- and College Football Hall of Fames as well. But post-football, he was an actor. In the 70s and early 80s, he appeared in like tons of TV shows and movies. My favorite appearance was as a prison guard football player playing against Burt Reynolds in my favorite football movie of all time, The Longest Yard in 1974. Just one of my favorite movies. Ray Nitschke, former Packer, was in that. He played for the guards as well. But Joe Cap being a foil for Burt Reynolds was great. And then don't, don't bring up that weak-ass remake with Adam Sandler for The Longest Yard. I refuse to see that, even if Burt Reynolds made a cameo. He appeared in tons of TV shows in the 70s. He was in Ironside, $6 million man, Adam 12, Emergency, all hours and hours of wasted youth for me. But one other thing about Joe Cap that sticks out, I don't know if you know about this, Bruce, his onstage brawl at the age of 73 at a 2011 CFL alumni reunion. Do you know about this? This one's new to me. You got to see this. So the, he, he was CFL star. And he went to the 2011 CFL alumni luncheon, and they had fellow CFL Hall of Famer Angela Mosca up there. Now, Mosca played, was a legendary uh, defensive player for the uh, Hamilton Tiger Cats, and he went on to become a pro wrestler where he was known as King Kong Mosca. Uh, but that's not really an important part of the story. The reason why this, this story is being told is there was bad blood between these two guys that went back to the 1963 Great Cup Finals. This was 2011. In the 63 Great Cup Final, Moscow was playing for the Hamilton Tiger Cats, put on a dirty late hit on Joe Cap's teammate, teammate, their star running back, Willie Fleming. Willie Fleming was concussed and taken out of the game, so Cap's BC Lions eventually lost to Moscow's Tiger Cats in, in the Great Cup. So 48 years later, there was still bad blood between these two guys, and Joe Cap attempted to jokingly hand over a, an olive branch as um, kind of a, a way to make peace, and he handed him actually a flower, and he reached over to try to give it to Mosca, and Mosca batted away with his cane, and then Mosca swung his cane at Joe Cap, and Joe Cap got out, got up, and knocked him off the stage with a punch. Wow. So these 70-something-year-old guys got into a brawl on the stage. And it's like watching a dumpster fire. These two old guys go at it. And not to glorify old man on old man violence, but Cap just got up. Talk about, talk about a blood feud. 
48 years later, you still hated the guy. And he knocked Must have been one questionable hit, that's for sure. Wow. I watched it. You know, it looked, it didn't look that bad. It looked a little late. I, I see if footage is available on YouTube. I actually went as far as looking at the hit that could have created so much animosity. So um, it reminds me a lot of Tim Daly's character in Diner, who punched out. Did you ever see Diner? I have seen Diner, yeah. Tim Daly, years after the fact, whenever he sees someone in public that jumped him on the baseball field, punches out the guy without even warning. That reminded me of that. Like, that was a grudge. Maybe if Cap had ever won a Super Bowl, he wouldn't wouldn't have felt the the need to go after this guy over the breakup. I know, I know. I would love to take a selfie with Joe Cap sometime. That would be the bomb. And I do want to see a photograph. If your parents could somehow, or someone in your family can, dig out that photo of your hand with Alan Page's hand. I want to see it, and I'm putting it on my website. I'm going to put it on Facebook <laughs> if you find that. All right, so we talked. you brought this up before. You beat me to the punch. Former uh, running back Ed Marinaro, who's a stud and almost won the Heisman Trophy for Cornell, you know, had a pretty good NFL career, I got to say. He played in the NFL for a couple years for the Vikings and Jets, so can't say he was a failure at all. But he was a, he was a star playing a cop on Hill Street Blues. And also on Hill Street Blues was former UCLA basketball stud Michael Warren, as well as Michael Conrad, who played a prisoner football player versus Joe Cap's guards alongside Burt Reynolds in the longest yard. So it all kind of is interconnected. I got to say, you are as into this uh, 70s and 80s entertainment stuff as you are into <laughs> sports, I'd say. Yeah, a lot, a lot of wasted neuron space. Now back to the team. Now this is stuff that you're a little bit more familiar with, just to wind down the podcast, which has been as epic as any Viking saga. Vikings fans' misery just keeps going. They have never made it back to the Super Bowl, even though they've made it back to the NFC Championship five more times, losing all of them. In 87, they lost to the Redskins 17-10 to after the Redskins made a goal line stand. 98, they lost to the Falcons. I think this one stings the most to Vikings fans I know, like yourself. They lost 30-27, as you know, to OT, in OT to the Falcons, who would go on to lose in the Super Bowl, the Broncos. But they had this kicker, Gary Anderson, who had not missed a field goal for the entire frickin' season, yet lined up and missed the game winner. 38 yards. And then unrelated Morton Anderson would kick the, kick the game winner for the Falcons in OT and take them to the, to the Super Bowl. And this Viking team was stacked offensively. This is the team, I think, that had Robert Smith, had Randy Moss, had Chris Carter, right? Randy and, Moss's rookie year, that's right. Yeah. Was this Culpepper throwing, slinging the ball, or was this uh, Randall Cunningham? This was Randall Cunningham, yep. Who made a comeback and was unstoppable that year. So 2000 season, they made it to the NFC Championship. I don't know how. And they played the, the – uh, their quarterback was Jim McMahon, I think, in that game. And they got pummeled by the Giants, 41 nothing. But I would consider that kind of a mercy kill because if they went and played the Ravens in the Super Bowl, the Ravens would have eviscerated them the way the Ravens eviscerated the Giants. Nobody was beating those Ravens. Just so the memory doesn't – the misery doesn't end there. In 2009, <laughs> they lost to the Saints 31-28 to in OT after Brett Favre, who switched alliances from the Packers to the Vikings through an interception late in the fourth quarter while they were getting close to field goal range. And then the 2017 season, they made it to the NFC Finals but lost to the Eagles pretty handily 38-7. to 
So I would, I would say that even the hardiest fan of Nordic descent from the Northwoods would still get emotional when reminded of these Vikings near misses. And unlike other teams, unfortunately, featured on my podcast, both now and in the future, hopefully they'll come off the schneid because the Vikings have never had their day in the sun, really, never won the Super Bowl, just cold winters after the Vikings lose at season's end. I mean, there you have it in closing, an epic Viking saga that would make any fan want a Viking funeral. Bruce, do you have anything less to say to kind of wind down this epically long and very enjoyable pod for me to share with you? I really, it was a pleasure, pleasure having you, getting some insight from you. And I didn't mean to open up old wounds for you. It was not my <laughs> I open them up for day. myself all the time. It's, it's a, it's a. Oh boy, what a history of, of just disaster. But no, I want to thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. And I, I want to see that photograph. I definitely want to see that photograph. I hope it's I'll that. see if I can find it. I would love I to find it myself. So that's all for this installment of the Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast. We enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed it. Peace out. So that's all for season one of the Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have any ideas for other teams I should feature, please feel free to reach out through my Twitter, my Instagram, or my Facebook page, and I will be sure to take a good long look. I'm ready to get going on season two soon, so stay tuned, and I will update you on when that's going to launch. I just also want to thank Lobo once again and his band Checky Brown for allowing us to use their song Hippie Bully as our theme song. Bring us home, boys, to close out season one.